You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Teresa Noy. Teresa is an award-winning author, speaker, and founder of Hello Life Coaching. She has taught leadership and personal development at Eastern University for 25 years. Early in her tenure, Teresa accepted a position as resident director, and she and her husband, Henry, moved onto campus with a plan to live there for five years. After the birth of their son, Regal, their life plan seemed to be on track, but the new parents would later discover that Regal was not developing at the pace of other toddlers. At age three, Regal was diagnosed with autism. Now, this was at a time when there was not as much information or as many resources readily available to parents with children on the autism spectrum, but they did the research and eventually found a path forward. They ran a home program with Regal 40 to 50 hours a week for six years, building a bridge from his world into their own, while also parenting their daughter, Nia. It was not an easy journey, but Regal would eventually transition into regular school and graduate from high school with honors. Today, he's attending college on scholarship and is fully immersed in campus life. Teresa has continued on her journey of living and loving with intention and authenticity. Through her coaching work, she helps ambitious women live life with passion and joy by creating a personalized system that transforms negative thoughts into achievable goals. So here's her story. Please enjoy. Teresa, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Great, Delisha. Glad to have you. I think this is going to be a really great conversation. Let me just say, when I bring people on that I know personally, there's a level of calm that I have just because I know that there's a rapport there already. Like, when mm-hmm. I'm, you know, talking to strangers, you don't know what you're walking into. So it's always a good day for me uh, when I have a personal relationship with someone. So mm. really excited to... Um, to have you on and talk about your book and, and everything that you've been doing. And, and I've learned some things uh, in reading the book that I yeah. didn't know before. So I'm really excited for our listeners to hear your story um, as well. Mm. So I'm glad. Okay, okay. <laughs> Who is Teresa Noy? I am Teresa Noy. And um, I am the proud founder of Hello Life Coaching and the creator of the Personal Power Academy where I train heart-centered women to summon their personal power, become bold creators of their dreams, and to win authentic life championships. Um, I am also the award-winning, best-selling author of the book, Hello Autism, How to Love, Like, and Learn from Your Special Needs Child. Uh, I'm a proud Brooklyn native, BK all the way. I am a proud HBCU grad. Shout out to Hampton University. Um, I have been married to a phenomenal Black man, Henry James Noy, for over 24 years. Can you believe that? Over 24 years. And we have two talented, insightful, amazing special teenagers, Regal and Nia. Um, And, you know, I'm just so happy and grateful to be with you here today. So thank you again for the opportunity. And I'm really excited about this conversation. It's it's going to be good. So there's a lot that you mentioned there. And a lot of times, you know, we're in this era now where like everybody's a coach, everybody's coaching. They're trying to inspire. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a title that people 
throw, throw around pretty loosely, um, unfortunately. But what I do know with regard to your journey is while this chapter of Hello Life Coaching um, may be relatively newer, you've been impacting and investing in, in other people for years and years and years and years. Yeah. So talk to me about like what you wanted for yourself professionally and in terms of building a personal brand when you were early in your career? Huh. Well, when I was early in my career, I didn't really have a concept of personal brand or any of that. Um, I just kind of fell into what I'm doing. I started at Eastern University and I'm still working at Eastern University. I'm the director of um, the Multicultural Student Initiatives Program and the Good Scholars Program, which is a program for students that um, are from urban areas. Um, so, but when I first started at Eastern, I my onboard was a position as a resident director. And I just wanted to go into that position because my husband was in law school and we were looking at where, you know, how are we going to make the, 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 the numbers fit? You know, how are we going to live? I was going to be a teacher actually in Philadelphia. And uh, my good friend, Cheryl, which you know, Cheryl, she was a student at the university and she, um, she knew that there was going to be this resident director position that was going to come open. And she was like, you should apply. You would be perfect. I was like, what does an RD do? Like I, in my mind, all I could think of was, you know, like a different world. So I'm like, but what do they do? You know? And, um, she got the job description and everything. And when I read the job description, it was like a total fit with my gifts and my talents and my abilities. I was like, yo, I just, I can get paid to uh, just invest in students and just engage them and help them to become their best selves. And it was uh, a Christian environment. So I was like, oh, I can, you know, use my my faith at the same time and, and get free housing. So that was like a no brainer, right? So we said we would do that for just five years while Henry was in law school. And, you know, we could save a little money and then move on to get a house. But once I got in the position, I just like I reading the, the job description and everything, I was like, oh, this will be great. But once I got in it and really started working with the students, like I just knew that it was something I was born to do. Not so much being a resident director, but the opportunity that I had to impact so many students and to just pull out their um, abilities and help them to see who they were created to be. I mean, I just, I would just light up. Like I would just really feel like pleasure being with the students. Like I would, you know, be energized after being with them and excited and thinking about them all the time. And it was just, I could just do it like with my eyes closed, you know? And, um, and I just loved doing that. So then I just became invested in maximizing students. That was the population I worked with, right? Um, so my whole thing was just, this is what I love to do. I'm good at it. And I love seeing the results. I love results. So I love, you know, seeing the results of the work that I was doing with the students. And as I continued to do that, so we had a five-year plan. The five years turned to 10, to 15, to 20, to 25. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but, it, and there's a lot that happened in between those 25 years. But um, 
the the big thing was as I continued to work with the students and realize my giftings and my abilities and, you know, recognizing that I was a maximizer and a connector, I began to develop systems and a process to take them through. Um, and the more I um, developed that, the better the results got. And um, and then I started doing it with, with women. Um, and so it was just a natural transition moving from doing that within the higher education setting to the women that I work with now, you know, so, but the whole brand thing, all that, I was just, you know, I just was like, I want to connect with these, these people because I know who they are and I want to be a part of helping them to become who they were created to be. Right. So we'll get back definitely to how that has now turned into a formalized coaching uh, program and academy. But now to inject our personal connection. Yeah. So we met in the year 2000. You know, people who listen to the show regularly know that Philly holds a very special place in my heart. Yeah. Um, and, and as a, a Penn grad, and I remember coming to Philly and a, a mutual, you know, family friend said, hey, I know this couple, mm-hmm. you know, out in PA and she works at a college and he's a lawyer. Do you want to be connected? I was like, yeah, sure. Okay, cool. Um, and at the time, you know, I was really involved in my church back in Jersey and I was looking mm-hmm. for a church in, in Philly. And I remember you calling me. I remember I was in my dorm mm-hmm. and you called me and, you know, you introduced yourself and you were like, yeah, we go to this church. If you'd be interested in going, you know, we'd be happy to pick you up. Um, and that is how we met. But yeah. then it, it, it just kind of expanded and flourished into this um, bond, you know, outside of church, especially with your husband, Henry, being an attorney and, and me having aspirations at the time to go to law school. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I remember about that, that time is you were very much like a free spirited creative in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, really committed to young people. Um, and I don't even remember how old you were at that, at that time. Well, what year was it? I mean, so that was 2000. So I was 20. Eight, right? Which is crazy because I'm 38. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, is that but, right? Um, I'm not a mathematician. Yeah, 68, 38. No, you could have been that old. What year were you born? 68. You were born in 68, so that yeah. was 30. You were 32. 32. Yeah, okay, I was 32. So. But what was interesting with you working on a college setting, because I knew the RDs like, you know, at Penn. Right. They were very much like over here and we were over here. Like, you know, yeah, they did yeah. their jobs. They kind of sat in the ivory tower. Um, but you were like fully enmeshed in the dorm experience. And yeah. you'd be up at like one o'clock in the morning. I mean, I was like living the life, right? I was like living yeah. like a college student, right? <laughs> you I, were, I, I, right? So we bonded. But I never remembered, like in those early days, you having a strong pull towards like, I definitely want children. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think I ever heard you say that, even though you were like certainly operating in a maternal role um, mm-hmm. and, and playing that for a lot of kids. Right. A whole mm-hmm. lot. Um, but I don't ever remember like y- you being one of those people who was like, I have Mm-mm. to have a baby. Mm-mm. Was that like on your radar at all? Never. At that time? No, I, mm-hmm. I don't like kids. <laughs> and listen, you said I was maternal. I never saw myself as a mother. I was a big sister. 
You know, Got even it. when people would try to call me mom, I'm like, no, I'm I'm not your mother. I'm a big sister. Um, and I never wanted kids, and I don't like kids. I like mine, you know. And I'm a I'm a great mom, but that was never a burning desire for me to want children or any of that stuff. No. So what was the shift like when you were like, okay, maybe I actually want to do this, and I want to be a mom. Um, I. That I ever wanted to be a mom, I would say I, I just allowed myself to be a mom. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's honestly, it's just that you get married, you have kids. It was just the next thing. Um, and my husband wanted children, so you know, I signed up for it, and I'm glad that I did. <laughs> I don't want to make it seem like you know. Way to clean uh, that up. <laughs> I'm so glad that I did because, you know, I wouldn't be the person that I am today without my journey with my children. So I'm I'm, even my journey with marriage. I wouldn't be who I am today. So I'm thankful for it. But it wasn't it. You know, honestly, it really wasn't something that I was like, oh, I want to do. But I did it. And I'm glad I did it. I enjoyed the experience. But, yeah, I wasn't that person, you know. Right. Yeah. So but it, it happens. Yeah. Right. And and yeah. you talk about in your book, which you've mentioned the title, Hello Autism, which we have right here, um, <laughs> how to love like and learn from your special needs child that you had suffered a miscarriage mm-hmm. and then got pregnant again with mm-hmm. your son, Regal. Mm-hmm. And at that point, like having, you know, having your son, were you thinking about like getting out of the campus life? Like maybe we'll move off campus now. We've got this kid. Um, mm-hmm. Was that on your radar at that point, even though you were already past your timeline? Yeah, absolutely. So we um, we actually were looking at houses. Mm-hmm. We actually were planning on moving off campus. Um, but then it was before we had Regal's diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Once we realized that he um, was diagnosed with autism and we decided that we were going to run a home program with him, then we recognized that being on campus was the best place for us to be to run this home program. So, yeah, we we totally were ready to move out and be on our own. But just recognizing that the 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 system of running a program, being on a college campus was the best place for that. Yeah. Right. So let's talk about that, because I remember when Regal was born. And it was literally like somebody took the best of you and 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 Henry and like mixed you up in a lab and this beautiful baby came out. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, looking like the both of you just meld together. And but talk to me about when you started to realize that Regal may be on a different developmental journey. Yeah. Time. So actually, my husband, I have to say my husband started to realize it because like you said, I'm a free spirit, you know, so I'm just going along and he was our first child. So, you know, so he wasn't talking and doing things that other kids were doing. But at the same time, he didn't have older siblings to kind mm-hmm. of model. And um, there was another woman on campus. We were pregnant at the same time. Her son was a little older. And so Henry ran into him and he came home. He was like, I saw Jackson and he's doing this and that and this and that. And Regal's not doing that. He's like, something's up, something's up, something's up. And I was like, he's fine. He's fine. Jackson has an older sister. He's fine. He's fine. And so um, we, 
Henry was very insistent at getting him evaluated or taking him to the doctor. So I took him to the doctor and um, the doctor said the same thing that I said, you know, he's okay. He's moving, you know, at his pace. Everybody develops a different pace. And so he said, um, Henry still was like, we need to get him evaluated. So he gave us the um, information to get him evaluated and stuff. But I never followed up on it. I just was like, you know, I'm going to do it my way. So Mm -hmm. I I didn't follow up on it, but I did put him in um, preschool because, all right, he needs some interaction, right? So we put him in preschool. And once he got into preschool, there was a day when all of the kids had to come together. They had, it was a, a Montessori school. And so the parents sit around the periphery and watch the children play. And it was in that moment when he was not playing with all the kids were doing all the different activities. And my son was in the corner talking to himself, doing doing things that I thought initially were so endearing and cute. But now seeing him with other children doing those same things, it was glaringly obvious that that he was different. And so that's when it really hit me like, okay, something is going on here. However, I still didn't want to acknowledge it. So I saw it, kind of had it going on in my head, but I still didn't want to admit that, you know. So I didn't I didn't move forward with anything. But um, a couple of weeks later, the preschool called us and they wanted to have a meeting and they called us in the room. They gave us out. Che- they had already prepared it. They gave us our check back. <laughs> we had paid for the whole semester in full. They were like, give us our check back. And they were like, you know, gave us a list of all of these things that what he couldn't do and told us that this wasn't the place for him and then gave us information for him to get evaluated, which I responded defensively. I said, we already have this information. Thank you very much. And um, it's all, look, it's already in the works, which it wasn't. And, uh, <laughs> and then we left and we went to this park and we just cried and cried and cried um, because it just, it really hit me. And, and my husband, he he knew, he wasn't like I told you so. He was just, you know, like, okay, what are we going to do? And so then I called and that's when the whole process started with us really acknowledging that he had autism and then going through the process of figuring out what was going to be the best pathway for him to move forward with that. Yeah. So you get this diagnosis. Yeah. And, you know, and I think, you know, people may hear this now and think about it and look at it through the lens of 2020. Right. Where conversations about autism, programs around autism, autism awareness is pervasive. But right. that was the case. No. You know, what was that? What was this like 16 years ago, maybe? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, was not that long ago, but we've made a lot of strides in terms mm-hmm. of um, the medical field and, you know, therapy, them understanding uh, this. Mm-hmm. And made a lot of strides around acceptance of people who are not neurotypical. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then, it was kind of like, what? you know, what's really going on here. So for you not having, you know, access to all the resources that would be readily available in 2020, but having this diagnosis. And also, I think this is important to to add color to like being a person of faith, right? Mm -hmm. So like working at a Christian university, being in leadership at church. So always 
walking a faith walk uh, and knowing all the scriptures and all the cliches, but now receiving this diagnosis and not really knowing what the path forward was going to be. Where were you at that point Mm. emotionally and mentally? Girl, it depends on the day. (laughs) Um, And the pro well, initially, when I first got the diagnosis, I was just a wreck. Like, and I talk about this in my group, in my group, in my book, I, I had to like mourn, you Mm -hmm. know, I just like, I grieved. It was like something died in me and what it was my, my vision for what my son's life would be like, what our life would be like as a family. I had to grieve that, you know? Um, So I cried. I cried a lot. I cried (laughs) Every day I cried for for a minute Um, and uh, scriptures, prayer, you know, I've I've never been a person and you know me, I've never been a person that subscribed to a lot of Christianese and cliches and things like that. I keep it real. Um, I I was angry. I was Mm -hmm. angry. I was angry because I felt like, you know, I've invested so much. Well, first of all, you know, I, I, I had a miscarriage, my first child. Mm-hmm. So now I have this, um, this second chance per se that was in my head. I have a new, another child. Here's a second chance. And, you know, you give me a child with autism. So I felt angry, you know, um, I felt, uh, what's it? I've been bamboozled. I've been hoodwinked. You know, I felt like what, seriously, you know? Um, and then a lot of it was just my fear of, because I said I didn't want to have kids. Um, I didn't feel like I was competent as a mom. So I felt like, okay, how am I going to raise a special needs child? Like, what am I going to do with that? You know? So I didn't feel like I had the 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 ability in order to do that. So, um, yeah, so I went in and out in those spaces just with um, being angry about that, um, then being fearful about what that would look like, fearful for my child, would he be accepted? Um, Those three things I just kept going in and out of for a minute. Um, And then, I don't know, you can only cry, but well, for me, I just, I I don't like to, to, to have a pity party for too long. You know, um, so after after a while, I was just like, OK, either you going to you're going to work through this and, and find a path forward or you you're going to be miserable and you're not serving your child. <laughs> you know, so I had to kind of move forward in order to find the best way forward for Regal to um, fulfill his potential. Yeah. But I think it's important to note that grieving period, and I actually mm-hmm. had it in my notes because it's something we have spoken about on the show. Mm-hmm. And we are proponents of destigmatizing uh, mourning the life mm-hmm. that you thought you were going to have, or mourning yep. this dream or vision that you had for your family or for yourself that is just not going to be the case. And I think culturally, and then when you add in the Christianity piece, often we've been conditioned. Mm. to just keep moving. Mm. We're just going to keep pressing on. And, you know, we're going to just keep trying to deliver in spite of, and we're strong and resilient people. But I think it is important to move through the grieving process. Yeah, because you know, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. 
I was going to say, we strong, resilient, miserable people. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's just like, keep moving forward. Keep moving forward. God's my strength. He's going to help me. But, you know, you're miserable. You pissed off and, you, and, and you're miserable. So mm-hmm. if you're not honest with that, how are you going to deal with it? You know, you move forward, but you move forward from a very unhealthy place. And it's toxic. It's toxic to you. And it comes up in your interaction with everyone else. And and you miss out because that's, and, and you know, that's not who God is. Right. That's not who he is. He is love. And he's always wanting to, you know, um, to flow through us in that space. But when we don't take time to really process, we live through that lens of of anger and pain and we resist um we resist the 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 goodness of who God is we resist it we're trying to talk about him in these terms but it's a lie because you right. haven't given yourself time to process it you know right and that processing may not be linear right grief is mm. never linear like you may mm. It ebbs and flows and you may find your rhythm today and then circumstances change. Right. Um, Or, you know, something may trigger you again and you may take a step back. And that's also okay. And I Mm -hmm. I just one of the things that we have tried to promote on this show is people being kinder to themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it is a a line to walk between the pity party and and really, you know, processing that grief. Um, But that's why it's important to have good people, you know, around you, too, which you talk about in the book, which we will get to. Mm -hmm. Um, But so so looking at you have this diagnosis, you're going through your grieving process and you're like, okay, enough of that. Like, I I need to be there for my son and and Mm -hmm. navigate this. Mm -hmm. What in those early days of trying to figure out what the program was going to be to Mm -hmm. support Regal and maintain your sanity? How did you come to, okay, this is our our plan of action? Yeah. Um, So it took me about a year to figure it out. Because like you said, back then there wasn't um, all of this abundance of information and resources like there are now. So um, first of all, I went through what the the uh, agencies had given me. And basically, initially they come to your home and they were working with him in our home. But then once you turn three, then they turn you over to the um, your county. They have different preschools and stuff for the kids on the spectrum. So um, so I just, you know, I just went along and did whatever they told me to do. But I wasn't seeing any changes. So because um, I thought I thought that they were going to come and fix my child for me. That's what I mm-hmm. thought was going to happen. Just come on, professionals, come on, fix my child for me. Um, but he wasn't being fixed. And so then I started just going on the internet, you know, and looking up stuff. And it was a process. Um, I had a friend who lived down the street from me. She was the only um, other Black woman in my community. And we connected. And turns out she went to Hampton, too. We had met each other at a um, at a, a Hampton alumni event and turned out she lived right down the street from me. So that was awesome. We went I went to, I used to go to her house every day and cry. Part of my grieving process. I would go to her house almost every day. We I would cry. She would listen to me cry, rub my hand. We talk. We laugh. She would give me the wine. And then. <laughs> One day, I'm serious. I was going over there for weeks, crying, 
And then one day she says, you know, Teresa, I have a friend and her son has autism. I don't know what they did, but he is doing amazing now. And I said, I've been coming over here for weeks, months, sitting here crying with you. And you just now getting around to telling me that. And she was like, I I just, I I don't know. I just never thought of it before. So she um, is the one who told me about this program called Sunrise Program. So I called her friend and she told me about the program. It it was a program, it's called the Sunrise Program. And it was um, run by parents. It was started by um, these, now they had their child um, back in the day, like in the sixties, when they really didn't know nothing about autism mm. and they told them, put your son in an institution and they refused and they did what they felt was natural to them. And what that was, was just joining in with your child, just deep, unconditional love and acceptance and building a bridge from his world into our world. And they did that with their child. And he totally emerged out of his autism. He went on to graduate from Brown and he has no traces of it. So she's telling me this amazing story. I'm looking at the website and everything. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. But guess what? I got scared. Mm. (laughs) And I was like, wow, this is amazing. But this is for them. This won't work for me. Mm. This, she was um, a very affluent woman. She had a lot of resources. She has the money for this. I don't have the money for it. I'm looking at all of the the pictures of the kids and they were all white. This is for them. I don't see people that look like me. So I started feeling like, you know, I wasn't worthy that I couldn't make this work for me and my family. I had those limitations. And it took me a whole year. Um, we, she stayed in touch with me. Jen, she she became one of my dear friends to this day. Um, she stayed in touch with me and she would meet with me. And um, it took me a whole year of talking to her, looking at what they were doing, um, looking at, you know, and eat, with each conversation, I got a little bit more faith and I was still doing research and seeing what other things were out there. And I didn't see anything that compared to the results that, because remember I said I'm, I'm very results driven. I didn't see anything that had the results that stacked up to what the Sunrise program had. Um, and then I did this other little in, little program called um, Floor Time. And in doing that, it sort of mirrored to me what I had read about with the Sunrise program. And that gave me a little confidence seeing that I could do that and connect with Regal in that way, that maybe I could do the Sunrise program. So it was incremental. I would say that my faith for this built over time, but with each step, you know, with me being willing to to take the risk, then something else would come to me. Another idea would come to me um, till finally I said, let me just make the call, right? All you had to do is make a call. So I made the call and had the free consultation and they were so um, just engaging and loving and accepting. And, you know, I was so scared, you know, they're going to try to sell me something, but they were just, how can I help you? What can we do for you? And it was all about them trying to serve me and, and give me tools to help me. Even if you don't want our program, 
here are some things that could help you. So, um, yeah, so I just started, you know, implementing little things until I got to the place where I said, you know what, we could do this. And then after I kind of got that yes, it was it was all she wrote. And then we just developed this whole plan of action. And once I got the faith that I could do this, then, you know, all of those things that I had um, that were blocking my my belief that I could just all these different ideas started coming to me about how we can make this work, you know? So we uh, we just did this campaign. We took it upon us like we were um, on a mission. And I did a, a letter and we sent letter out letters out to all of our friends and family, just telling them, because we hadn't even told everybody, right? Mm-hmm. So we just put it out there. This is what's happening with Regal. This is his diagnosis. This is what we're going to do for him. And we invited them to be a part of the miracle. That's what we said. We invite you to be a part of our miracle. And we told them how they could assist us. They could pray for us. They could help us as we go to run this program. They could um, do um, little errands and things for us. They could help me with Nia. And you could give us your money too. And um, and so it was like just we just we just had this whole mission around it and we invited all of our friends and family to participate in it. And it it literally, it literally became a movement. Like we got people who um were a part of Team Regal that I didn't even know. And this is before Facebook, before mm-hmm. GoFundMe, before all of that, people would just copying the letter and sharing it with their friends. There was email. Some people emailed it and stuff, but um, it was just spreading. And people that we didn't even know started sending us checks in the mail and volunteering to be a part of our program and to help us and assist us. And it was it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah. So one of the things that I've, it's come up on this show and I've just seen it, you know, in, in personal circles, sometimes people struggle with you and, and Henry, obviously educated. You know, Henry's a lawyer, uh, HBCU grad, you're Delta, right? So there's mm-hmm. this perception of like, when you have, when you check certain boxes as a black couple, that you're the black bourgeoisie, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think sometimes people get caught up in appearances of like appearing to have a certain level of wealth um, mm-hmm. or a certain level of success, which makes it even more difficult to ask for help when you need it. Right. And on the flip side of that, a lot of times in our community, people will look at you and say, well, your husband's a lawyer, you work at a university yep. and you're on campus. Like, why do you need our help? Yep. So this is a two-pronged question. Did you have to overcome ego around asking for help, uh, particularly around the financial side of that? And also, did you receive some of that feedback? from people? Mm-hmm. So I would say... I didn't. I'd say my husband did. Once I, once I, my biggest thing was, could I run this program? Once I had the belief that I could, then I was just like, okay, let's do it. But, you know, we're a team. So in order for this to work, I knew this is not something, this was a 40 to 50 hour a week program. There's no way in in heckles <laughs> that we could do this program by ourselves, right? So I had to, um, we had to get a team. So we had to invite people in. So we had to share our story. So what I taught my husband is very private and he's an attorney. So I was like, listen, babe, 
you know, just share, this is what we're going to have to do. Um, and I'm just so grateful that he was able to to let that down, you know, let his guard down and allow the help that was assigned to come to us, you know, but it was, it was a big ask. It was a big ask for him. And, you know, I, I asked him, can you share this with your legal community? Cause they got the dollars. <laughs> and he was like, he at first was like, no, no, no. Now, listen, he hadn't even told his supervisor, his, his managing partner, what was going on. They had no idea. Henry was, was, was dealing with this autistic son and still in that. And he was at one of the, um, one of the firms in Philly, you know, it was, you know, that law life, it's very intense. Um, and so it was starting to show in some ways. And so he said, okay, I'll tell one person. And so he told Bob and when he told him, he was like, that's why, like, he was like, that's what's been happening. And he was like, I had no idea. Why didn't you tell me? And so Bob was like, can I share this letter with some of the other partners? And Henry was like, okay. And when Bob shared that letter, I'm telling you, every day I was going to the mail and getting $1,000 checks. I was like, oh my goodness. I was getting $1,000 checks in the mail, like every day from different people. Um, But so it was hard. But once he got over that, it was fine. The thing I had to get over was allowing people to come in our home that I didn't really know. That was a big piece because, you know, that's in the black community. You know, we don't we don't let people in. You don't go spend the night in nobody's house. You, you, You know what I'm saying? So that was a big thing. And and I let me just since we're being real, most of the people that were helping us wasn't people that looked like me. Right. So I had a lot of white people, not just white people. Right? I mean, all multicultural. It was amazing. though. It was amazing. I had I had the United Nations coming up in my house and you saw how they would just mm-hmm. people would just come in like clockwork every couple of hours. You know, I just had to leave my door open sometimes. People were coming in and out, but it was amazing. I had people come in doing my laundry, washing my clothes. And that lady, the um, the um my husband's um part, the partner um Bob, his wife called me. I had never met her. His wife called me. The partner's wife called me and says, Hey, I got your letter. Can I come over and wash your dishes? I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> I might have like, drawn a line there, like, no, no, it's okay. She's like, I just want, I just want to help. She said, she said, you know, I'd, I'd love to get to know your daughter. I can help with her, but you know, and she said, if you don't feel comfortable for like that with that, I can just wash your dishes, just whatever I can do to be of help. She came over, and I'm telling you, she became her. Her name is Beth. Beth and Bob. They became Aunt Beth and Big Bad Bob, and they started to keeping um, the kids on the weekends. So me and Henry can get a break. I mean, they were such a support to us. So I had this woman from Philadelphia. She would come over and wash the clothes, wash and fold the clothes. Because, you know, folding is the biggest thing, right? Right. She would wash and she would take the train from Philly to come and wash and fold our clothes. I mean, it was crazy. It was crazy. But all of that, just from telling our story and saying, hey, we need help. This is how you can help us. Do you want to be a part of this miracle? So many people 
were like, yes, of course. Because at the end of the day, we all want to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, you know? And people are just good. They just, they want to, they want, people, people are good. They want to help. They want, they want to be a part of something. So um, we, we created space for them to do that and to be a part of it. So it was, I mean, I put up flyers like in Whole Foods and like yoga, yoga places, you know, places where people are open and, Mm -hmm. you know, in touch and want to do good. And those were the people that responded. And let me do, let me say, I did have cameras in the room. So we had cameras. For those of you who say, what is wrong? I had cameras. I had 24 hours surveillance, but um, but I had to be open. I had to be open to something that was totally um, non-traditional, but um, it was it was amazing. And I want to talk about some of the realities of it, though, because people, you know, they hear this stuff and it gets romanticized and they have like this Lifetime movie in their minds. Yeah. This after school special. But it's important <laughs> to note that one, when you say 40 or 50 hours a week, you mean every week on holidays. Etc. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two, there was a dietary component to this mm-hmm. as well. So mm-hmm. in addition to you working with Regal, you know, your family and that dynamic and all these volunteers, you're sticking to like this probiotic rich diet as well that required an immense amount of preparation. Mm-hmm. Also. So talk yeah. a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, man. And uh, let me also say I was still working, too. So. Yes, and I was going to get to that. And not only working, <laughs> but like with teenagers coming into adulthood, which is like a whole other set of drama. But anyway, oh, yeah. I don't know how I did that. I, I, me either. I don't know how I did that. I don't know. But yeah, the diet, the diet was crazy. So I really totally had to just, I just had to let go of all my traditions. I really did because this probiotic rich diet was some was some crazy stuff. I mean, <laughs> uh, we were going, we were ordering whole cases of coconuts every week. Our Friday night date was cracking open coconuts, young coconuts, and draining the the water and putting this probiotic mix in it and making this this kefir. Um, and then we would scoop it out and make this, the, the young coconuts uh, pudding and stuff and started eating seaweed and um, all these dietary things where we um, didn't mix these food combining rules. So you only ate your proteins and your vegetables and then your carbs and your veggies. You didn't mix them, but we only ate certain carbs, you know, we eliminated gluten and dairy and whew, it was, it was a huge, huge learning curve for me. Um, but let me say, I didn't do it alone. Here's the thing. I didn't, I had a coach. Mm-hmm. I had a coach for everything. I didn't try to figure this out by myself. I would not have had the success that I had if I tried to figure it out by myself. So I had a nutritionist, um, who just walked with me every step of the way. She gave me a clear process. All I had to do was follow the process. I had to stick with it, which is the hardest part, right? Mm -hmm. But I didn't have to try to figure it out, right? Um, And I just had to be willing to abandon my comforts, right? So we had to, uh, we, we 
threw away all the food. You know, <laughs> I won. I won. I'm, I'm super healthy now, but I wasn't healthy then. But because of Regal, right? We just. I remember I just threw everything away, threw everything processed away. So now we don't eat processed food. What does that mean? That means that I have to cook right. every single meal and I have to plan it out. Um, so yeah, that was that was a whole education for me. Even going to the grocery store and looking at I had never even made fresh food from, you know, fresh produce and stuff. What is that? I buy the frozen thing and throw it in there. So, you know, learning how to <laughs> cut up greens and, and you know, garlic and onions. I, I, I'm not a cook. I, I didn't like to do none of that stuff, you know, but I had to learn those skills because um, I knew that it was the best thing for my son. And I wanted him, I had a vision for him in order for him to reach his full potential. So I was willing to make those sacrifices. I was willing to learn and to be stretched and challenged. And yes, it was a huge learning curve, but I just, you know, I just knew if I stuck with it, I was going to see some results, you know? So I just stuck with it. And you were rocking like with vegetables that people hadn't heard of, like jicama. I think the first time I ever heard of jicama was from you. (laughs) Um, so that's number one. And number two, not just cooking the vegetables, but things had to be pureed for a period of time and all of that. And one of the things that you mentioned in the book, which I want to highlight here, because people, some people will hear this and be like, "Eh, did it really take all of that? But you mentioned in the book, getting a little bit off that program Mm -hmm. and seeing changes in Regal when you weren't as strict with the dietary measures as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, awareness is, awareness is everything, right? So once I started to learn how connected um, what we put in our, it is like a no brainer. Like we do know it. We know this stuff, right? We know we shouldn't eat Doritos and all that other junk food. I'm not coming for nobody and, and how they eat. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, the reality is we know that all that processed food and you read all the ingredients you know, logically, it's not good for you, but we still do it, right? Once I started to learn, though, that the impact that it had on specifically kids on the spectrum and how it impacts their digestive system and they develop what's called a leaky gut so that whatever they eat, their body is not breaking it down properly and those nutrients are not going through the proper processes to get to their brain in order for them to function. So instead of them getting what they need in the proper way, you know, you're not hitting all those pathways. And so, you know, his brain is sick. His brain is starving. So of course he's walking around in the days and not able to communicate because he's not getting the right um, signals. Um, So once I understood that, I was like, wow, well, I can fix that. You know, you telling me that I can fix that if I just put some good food in his body and he gets the right nutrition to his brain. And for me, I just felt like that was worth the sacrifice, you know? And so, but it takes a lot of work. So right. sometimes I got a little lazy and I'm like, you know what? Does it really take all of this? It don't take all of this. Uh, when we changed it, we saw him start to get 
eye contact and language started opening up and we were like, wow, this is really happening. But then you get a little weary and like, oh, it don't take all that. Let me just pull back. Or you get comfortable with like, okay, wow, look how great he's doing. Let me pull back just a little bit. And then I started to notice some things with him getting a little more um, jumpy or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? His attention, you know, his attention span and, and the eye contact and everything. So I was like, oh, this this is real. This is like for real, for real. So I, um, you know, just do what you got to do, you know, because right. I recognize the value in it. So, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things, and I do want to talk about Nia and having to parent another child um, yeah. through all of this, but just before we get there, you talk in the book about some of the ugly stuff that people don't like to talk about, right? Yeah. And you know, so everybody has their idea about how autism may manifest in, in a child. Um, but one of the things that you experienced was Regal reaching certain milestones late. And one of those milestones was being potty trained. <laughs> so now I knew this story before, you know, reading the book, but one of the things that you talked about in the book is like having to change four-year-old, a four-year-old's diaper, mm -hmm. or you tell the story of like walking in the room and, and what you encountered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His shit all over the, the... <laughs> can I say that? Ooh, we'll mute it. It's fine. <laughs> Everybody gets comfortable on this show. It happens. His feces all over the wall. He would finger paint with his poo. Mm. Yeah. So to walk, you know, you don't want to start your day cleaning crap off the walls, you know, but right. that was a part of my everyday existence. My husband would come home from work um, and uh, clean. Well, no, this, this that was after he got potty trained. That was another, that's another story. But yeah, we would, um, I would have to clean the stuff off the wall, clean the clap off the wall. And that, uh, those big, we ordered um, these big oversized, you know, diapers. And uh, that was our, that was our day. That was part of our day-to-day -day routine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you like mentioned these moments where you may not have risen to the occasion as a, mm -hmm. as a mom. Mm -hmm. And like locking Regal in a room or letting him <laughs> run run him up right in in church or what have you, mm -hmm. um, and chipping his tooth. So, mm -hmm. so you mentioned that, but in those instances, were you able to move past any? Did you feel guilt? And if so, were you able to actually move past it in in those days where it might have been you might have felt less than at your best? Yeah, yeah. I mean. I made a lot of mistakes and yeah, mm -hmm. I felt, I, you know, I'm not even calling them mistakes because um, I'm just, I was just a mom uh, trying mm -hmm. to figure it out. Right. So I wouldn't necessarily call it a mistake because I didn't know what I was doing and you don't know what you don't know. Right. right. Um, but yeah, I felt guilty a lot of times for things mm -hmm. that I, I, I mean, I felt guilty for, for him, um, for us not acting soon enough when um, we found out about the autism. I felt guilty about that for a little bit. I felt guilty that I didn't listen to Henry when he kept saying, insisting that something was up. I felt guilty that I, you know, because I didn't really want to be a mom 
right? I, I wasn't like wanting to be a, 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 a mom. I felt like, well, maybe I didn't have enough passion. I wasn't like invested enough and I would have done things differently if this was my lifelong dream, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, we all have to go through our guilt, guilt valley, right. you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a part of being human. But I, 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 I didn't hold it. You know, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. hold that stuff. I don't hold that stuff for too long, but I allow myself to feel it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So how did you navigate having Nia as well? Who's what, two years behind? Yes, two years. years. Mm-hmm. So having to mother another child and also balancing having a child that has special needs, who's getting a lot of attention, mm-hmm. a lot of people. So how did you navigate having to nurture your daughter and also making her feel equally as loved and attended to? Yeah. So <laughs> I thought I did a great job at that until she became a teenager and told me that mm. I, I didn't. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, again, we do the best that we can. So we were very intentional to have dates set up just for Nia, right? My husband and I, we always had like something special that we did just with Nia by herself. Um, You know, I had these people coming in and out of house and they would spend time with Regal so that I could be with Nia and do stuff with her. Um, I mean, I, I felt like, I mean, not that I felt like, I know, I know that I did the best that I could and we, mm-hmm. We would just, we would, we would plan it out. We were very intentional making sure that we had time set aside just for Nia. And that's what we did. (laughs) And I think like, and I'm glad you said, you know, I did the best that I could. Because one of the things that I feel often is a cultural thing as well, is kids as they get older, don't have the space and the freedom to be able to say, I didn't exactly get what I needed. Yeah. And that can coexist with like, Mm -hmm. I did the best that I could. And I think sometimes we don't have those dialogues around Mm -hmm. how certain life circumstances or familial dynamics may have affected what a kid felt like they needed or wanted. And it doesn't diminish anybody's effort at being a good parent. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's healthy to acknowledge that. And Mm -hmm. people have show and like, really just said whatever about their parents. And sometimes I cringe like, oh, you said that publicly? Mom, (laughs) But... I think that's a healthy dialogue. And I, yeah. I commend for being able to say, like, while still living under your roof, like, no, oh, yeah. I didn't, oh, she, didn't she get what was, I needed. She, she, she did feel like, you know, she missed out on saying, and, and I acknowledge that, like, Nia doesn't know how to ride a bike. We never told mm-hmm. her how to ride a bike. Um, she didn't learn it. Mm-hmm. That's something we missed out on. And now, when she got a little older and we were like, okay, it's not too late. She was like, I don't want to learn ride a bike now. And I was like, come on, you can do it. Then she was like, so we tried a little bit. And then she was like, I'm over this. No, I don't want to do it. So mm-hmm. at that point, honestly, that's not my fault. Right. That's your choice. You know? Mm-hmm. So um, if she wants to learn how to ride a bike, then she'll learn how to do it. But um, so, but when she was younger, yeah, I, I wish that at least I had a thought to hire somebody to do it. You know, mm-hmm. like, like I didn't teach Regal how to ride a bike. One of his volunteers taught him how. Mm-hmm. So I wish that I'd had got one of them million people that came in and said, hey, teach her how to ride the bike too. 
I miss that, you know? So there's some things that I miss. There are some things mm-hmm. that I miss. And and I've owned those and I've told her and we've talked about it. And she and she acknowledged, you know, I didn't always get what I needed, but I knew that, you know, Regal needed it. So I know you did the best you could. And, sh- and she's making up for it now because she's getting all of She's been getting all the attention when she got into those teenage years, you know, she, and and she said that when we, (laughs) when we had our our book release and, and we, everyone was interviewed, she said, I'm making up for it now. It all works out. (laughs) So (laughs) it's, it's all good. Yeah. So, so she was going to regular school. So Mm -hmm. in a sense, Regal was exposed to that, right? To her going Mm -hmm. to school every day, getting to the classroom. And he decided at one mm-hmm. point that he wanted to go to school. Yeah, he decided that. You had him in this cocoon. Yeah. You know, with an army of volunteers with this program that was like highly orchestrated. Mm-hmm. And now he wants to go to school. Yeah. What was that like for you with him making that declaration? Yeah, it was like, it was exciting, but scary at the same time mm-hmm. and disappointing because I really? never, yeah, I didn't want him in school. I was like, get. I was like, you know, he's going to thrive being in this bubble and we can create it and shape it just whichever way we want. School wasn't my, I never saw him going to regular school per se. Um, but at the same time, it was like, wow, he's he's grown to this place. Because you're talking about a kid who was in immersed in his own world and now he's mm-hmm. saying, I want to go to school. That's amazing, right? Right. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. But he made this declaration before he was actually ready to go to school. Mm-hmm. Like we had to work with him for two years in order to develop the skill set to be able to be in school. You know, and how but, old was he when he made the declaration? Uh, well, he went to school in the fourth grade. So in like around, so nine, like around seven, like around seven. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. work with him for two, two years. Mm -hmm. He starts just going in like one afternoon, right? A a week. Yeah. When he started school, he went in the afternoons um, for the first part of the year. Mm -hmm. And then after um, the Christmas break in January, he went for the second half. He went for the whole day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's fast forward uh-huh. now to 2020. That's yeah. Very the lead here. Regal's away at college. Regal is away. Oh, and away, away. He's like, away, not away. Regal is like 1,200 miles away. Yes. Yeah. So, how did you as a family, right? Because obviously he's, and I want people to like read the book. So, I don't want to, you know, get into everything, but he's evolved and he still has his way that he sees the world and, mm-hmm. um, but he evolved to the point where he's like, I'm, I'm going away for school. Right. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. and I will admit, like when that announcement came out, I was like, wow, like they're <laughs> actually sending him to another region of the country. Um, <laughs> did you, did you have immediate comfort with that? Or did it take some time for you to wrap your head around your son, not only leaving the nest, but going to stay in a dorm, you know, somewhere else, some other part of the country. It is so weird, but I honestly, I have been, this whole process, I have felt nothing but just joy, mm-hmm. just deep joy. Everybody keeps saying, how you doing? How you do-? I'm like, I'm great. Like, mm-hmm. I'm great. Um, I'm genuinely great. I'm just, 
I'm just blown away, you know? I mean, again, you're talking about a kid who could not leave the house. He couldn't even leave the house Mm -hmm. because his sensory issues were so great. The only place we could go was the supermarket because I could Mm -hmm. keep him in the shopping cart. And I would run, I would go, you've been with me to the supermarket. You know, I love the supermarket, right? Supermarket. You have an interesting relationship with the supermarket. (laughs) I love the supermarket. You know why? Because that was the only place that I could go with Regal. And I would Mm -hmm. roam through those aisles in the supermarket. And that was just like, that was my sanctuary. That was my place. Um, So you talk about a kid who couldn't do that. And now, yeah, he can go away to college 1,200 miles away. I'm just, every day I wake up with such gratitude. Um, So just our process, first of all, we got, again, I got a coach. Listen, once I realized the, the secret to success is having a guide and not trying to figure it out by yourself. I got a coach. I got a coach, a college coach for Regal who specifically specializes with kids on the spectrum. Mm. So every single college that we applied to was col- they were colleges that were um were autism friendly, you know, mm. that had support for them, that the community was ready to accept them and they wouldn't be floundering. Right. So that was that was one piece. When we went to this school, I was like, oh, well, well, let me stop. First of all, Regal has said, just like he he announced that he wanted to go to school. I I can't remember exactly when he started saying it. I would say probably let's say middle school. I, I could check with Henry for the exact date. But he was saying, yep, I'm leaving you guys. I'm not going to be around here. I'm leaving you guys. And he started saying that he he had a vision for himself to go far away. And then he loves wearing shorts and flip flops. So he kept he got in his head. I'm going to move to Arizona where he's never been to Arizona. I don't know where he got that from, but he got it in his head. I'm going to go away to college and then I'm going to live in Arizona where I could wear shorts and flip flops all the time. And then he got in his head, I'm going to go away to college. I'm going to go somewhere warm and y'all are not going to see me anymore. He, that was his vision for himself. So every college that we applied to, he applied to the ones that were in warm weather. He applied to um, Texas Tech um, and he got, he got accepted into every single school. Let me add Mm. that. With scholarships, he got accepted to Furman, which was in South Carolina, Texas Tech, University of Tennessee. Like he was applying to all these schools that were far away, but with the coach's guidance that they had really great support. We went to visit, you know, we finally narrowed it down and University of Tulsa was the one that like really aligned with him just from on paper. So we went to the University of Tulsa. When we got to that university, I was like, oh my goodness. This is regal. Like I stepped on campus and the people, the conversations, the support, the director of the support program, everything just screamed regal noise. And he was just at home. He was just at home. And I knew it was it was everything that he needed, (laughs) except it was so far. Right. But it just checked off all the boxes. So, um. Again, it's about me not, 
you know, being selfish and wanting to to hold them to myself. When when God gives us these these kids, He's just loaning them to us, but He has a specific purpose and assignment for them that's bigger than me. You know, bigger than Him being a part of our family. So um, I knew that that He needed to be at the University of Tulsa, mm-hmm. and He's been thriving there. We talk to Him every week. We have a Zoom call, and I when I tell you, He looks so happy. And he has such um, such a confidence um, in his voice and he's, his posture. I mean, he's like a different person. You can see it just leaping off of the screen. Um, he's just this, he's a different person. It's amazing. It's amazing. So I know that this is where he's supposed to be. That's incredible. Now, I, I want to shift gears a little bit, but I think it's important to, to bring this up um, because... A lot of marriages don't survive mm-hmm. this set of mm-hmm. circumstances. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people get married, right? So you get married to this aspiring lawyer, right? You both have this vision of like what your life is going to be. Mm-hmm. You're going to be on campus for five years. You're going to buy this home. And marriage is hard enough. But adding in financial uh, obstacles and especially children in general and then a special needs child and then you and Henry, like all couples, are not the same people, right? Mm-hmm. You have different ways of seeing things and different temperaments. Yes. Yes. Um, so how have you navigated over 20 years of marriage with all of these other challenges and kept your marriage intact? Uh, I'm not going to sit here and paint a, you know, tiptoe through the tulips, rose garden story or whatever. It has been a challenge. Mm-hmm. The biggest piece is something that we committed to when we first got married was that we have a commitment to communicate. Mm-hmm. So I can say that we um, we talk, we talk to each other, we talk about what we're feeling, what we're experiencing. Um, again, you gotta have a guy. We go to counseling. Mm-hmm. We don't try to figure it out on our own. Right. We have been in counseling, you know, in and out. I would say probably about every five years or so we would go get a little tune up. You know, I, when we first got married, we invested in a whole year. Can we our premarital counseling? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that that wasn't, you know, it happens. That's right. A whole other podcast. That's a whole nother <laughs> podcast. But uh, we got we invested in a whole year of counseling our first year of marriage. And then after that, like about every five years, we would go, you know, and and get a tune up or whatever. So we learned these foundational skills on how to communicate with each other um, and just being very intentional in not um, not growing apart, you know, because it's, it's always been about us nurturing our relationship and not allowing the kids um, and other stuff to get in the way, because at the end of the day, if we going to stay married, it's about us. Those kids going to go like Regal. He's like, see, ya, I'm going. And Nia, she's like, you know, I'm next. Um, and I don't want to be being being at a college campus has been great because a lot of the students that I walked with, their parents were getting divorced as soon as they left for college. And I was like, we're not going to be one of those people when our kids leave that we're like, we don't know each other. 
you know? So we um, really committed to just just getting to know each other, continuing to get to know each other. Because you know you change like every seven right. years, right. right? So we are not the same people that we were when we got married. So we have to continue to invest in, in getting to know each other, learning to accept each other, not trying to change each other. You know, it all sounds great, but the the day-to-day, it all comes down to making that commitment to do the work, doing the work on yourself. You know, once I started to really do the work on me and stop trying to change Henry, that's when things started to really shift in our marriage, you know, Mm -hmm. because we were focused on, all right, let me just focus on me and let them be great on their own, you know? Right. That's Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Time when I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. That's a great question. Uh, I have many. What time will I share? (laughs) What time, which time can I share? Um, I think, um, I think the biggest thing is I mean, everybody is always given these um, accolades about the work that we did with Regal. And, you know, like you said, how did you keep your marriage together? And, you know, all that stuff, Um, which is big. I'm not saying all that stuff, you know, it's really big. But I think the biggest thing for me is accepting my um, humanity. I think the most extraordinary thing is having the the courage to accept that we are weak and you know, we are flawed and that we don't have to have it together. And um, I spent so many years, and which is a surprise to a lot of people when I share this, because, um, you know, we look like we have it together on the outside, but inside just like so much going on in here and I'm saying in here, people can't see me, but in my head mm-hmm. and in my heart. And I spent so many years trying to fit into this certain um, image of what I was supposed to be like, trying to fit into having the perfect image of my what a, a good wife was, what a good mother was, what a good person was, you know, and all these other things that I should be that I really didn't know who I was. And um, it wasn't until working with Regal, um, going through that program, that I had to come to terms with um, me being uh, human, I guess. And, And accepting that my weaknesses were actually my greatest strengths and um, not trying to please people or second guessing myself um, or trying to look a certain part, just having the, the, the courage to, to be exactly who I was. So I, that's not a, that's not necessarily one day, but it's been an ongoing process of me learning how to love myself mm-hmm. um, and um, and discovering that I really like who I am 
and not trying to to make myself fit in to make other people like me. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think that's extraordinary when I can accept exactly who I am and feel comfortable in my skin to be exactly who I am without the the fear of will I be accepted? Because what happens is I started to attract more people and to move into um, the spaces that I was trying to make happen. It just started to come to me. And uh, the people that I wanted to be a part of, they started to be directed to me. The more I became at home with who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was very powerful for me. That's, and I think you, you brought some of this up in the book when you talk about the beholding and the becoming principle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you approach it in a very nuanced way because, you know, we always hear just like, fake it till you make it and, you know, just speak those things and, and all this stuff when inherently there's a lot of deep rooted insecurity that many of us have mm-hmm. or limiting beliefs. Um, and you encourage people to start on that journey of self-discovery and changing their language, but utilizing language that they can actually believe. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, it may not be, you know, today I'm the most productive person. It may just be, I'm taking little steps and I'm hanging in there, mm-hmm. but it's something that you can believe. And if you build on that, it's going to expand, right? Mm-hmm. And those, that positivity is going to expand. And I think that's important. And, and this is where too, I, I have, um, I think a, a little bit of a gripe with Christian culture because, mm. you know, we just, we're always telling people to de- decree and declare and just, but not really dealing with the energy underneath all that and where they really are from a spiritual uh, and emotional perspective. And they're saying a lot of things, but they are not at the core. They don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know that the results um, will ring true. I, I think it rings hollow until you actually deal with how you feel about yourself and Mm -hmm. who you believe that you are and what it is that you believe that you deserve. Um, And when you start to deal with that at a a cellular level, over time, I think you do, it improves and the confidence improves, right? And the declarations may change and you may evolve to where you want to arrive to. And ultimately, yes, water does seek its own level and whatever you're trying to attract to yourself is ultimately going to come. But that that's a, pro- a process. And yeah. I think we need to think a little bit more critically about how we behold until we become. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. You know, mm-hmm. I, I used to, um, I mean, I just lied. I just lied so much. <laughs> <laughs> I just lied so much. That's why I couldn't think of like one extraordinary thing because I feel like I am extraordinary the day that I made the decision to become a truthful person, you know, mm-hmm. truthful to myself um, and uh, and stop making up stories. You know, I just made up so many stories in order to fit in, in order to to be, you know, perceived in a certain way. And I just got caught in that whole pattern of just lying. I remember I remember I remember not even knowing what was true and what was what was real because I was just in this pattern so mm-hmm. much of lying, you know? And and the day that I decided I want to be an authentic person. And even though that was scary as I don't know what to me, because I didn't know what that looked like, you know, but that the courage and the strength 
that came on that journey, um, man, you can't get that back. You can't, you can't manufacture that, you know, and just the, um, the at home that I feel within myself is just priceless, you know? And so everything that I was striving and working so hard for is just, it's just coming, you know? Yeah. And, and that's why when people like get outed after having crafted these images online on mm-hmm. Instagram or Facebook and they, they get outed as not being that, you know, people always go to their charlatan, a swindler. And that is the case many times, but I do think sometimes people are so committed to a narrative mm-hmm. that they literally start to believe that it's true. They've been regurgitating it so much. Yeah. The, line, the lines are so, it's almost like sociopathic behavior, but you've been, you know, repeating that over and over this script where it really becomes your reality. And it takes work to unlearn that and, and get to your own place of authenticity, which is not an overnight process at all. It's, it is not, I'm still, you know, I'm 52. I'm still, you know, on the journey, but mm-hmm. You know, I think that that's just a part of if if you're alive, mm-hmm. you should constantly be growing, you know, right. and um, expanding who you are. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, I, I hope I hope that I never stop growing, you know, right. that I never stop growing and I, that I that I discover new areas in me. And, you know, I again, I have a coach. And so mm-hmm. my coach is constantly challenging me, you know, in those areas because there's so much in us that we don't, we're right. not even aware of, you know, that subconscious, man. It's real. Exactly. <laughs> and and now you're helping other women on their path to self-discovery mm-hmm. as well. So before we let you get out of here, tell us a little bit more about your coaching program and the things that you offer to help others on their journey. Oh, yeah. Well, I just love it. I just love it. It's um, the Personal Power Academy. Mm-hmm. And it's a three-month program. And we really just delve into our thoughts, you know, transformative thought work. Because if you change your thoughts, you could change your life, mm-hmm. right? And we think so much about ourselves. That's just not true. It's just not true. We were we were created to 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 make impact mm-hmm. and uh, to thrive and to enjoy life. Enjoy life. Mm-hmm. This this beautiful world was created for us to enjoy. And because of the the narrative that has been passed down to us and the experiences that we've had, um, we miss out on all the good that's trying to make its way to us. So I love um, being able to partner with women to help them to see, not even, I'm, I'm not going to say help them because when you say help them, it's, it denotes that they're helpless because these mm-hmm. women are powerful women. I'm not helping anyone. I'm, I'm partnering with them and um, just assisting them in transforming their thoughts. So it's been uh, such an honor to see them move from point A to point B you know, women that came with just a cycle, a pattern of negative thoughts and not seeing themselves as enough, um, not having the courage to step out and pursue those dreams. They put them on the shelf because, you know, women do everything for everybody and they put themselves last on the list. But um, seeing them be able to create space for themselves and now, you know, 
you're starting your business. My last cohort that I did, we had three women that started their own businesses. Mm -hmm. You know, we had, I had one woman who said that she has not had as much freedom and peace and joy in her life like this in a long time. You know, I had another woman with a special needs child who, um, just had so much guilt around, uh, similar to, you know, what I had, so much guilt around not being there for her child and being able to, to assist her and care for her when actually she was hindering her child with her fears. And for her to be able to step into this space and watch her child start to become more independent and do all of these amazing things for herself. And then she ended up starting her own business as well. And um, her marriage just shifted, just a lot of just changes. And all of that came as a result of her just being able to look at the patterns of thought that she had, mm-hmm. you know, and, and engaging in this process and moving uh, moving forward. So it's it's been a really powerful to to be on this journey of transformation with these women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like having known you for two decades now, I learned some things in this conversation as well. Um, so I'm very happy that we we had it, but, but tell the people where they can find out more about your programming, where they can purchase your book. Yeah. Yeah. So you can find me on all the social media platforms. I'm on Instagram, Teresa Noy, LinkedIn, Teresa Noy. Um, I'm on Facebook. I have a wonderful community on Facebook called Dynamic Women Moving Forward. Um, I'd love for you to uh, join our Facebook community. I also do a free five-day um, Take Back Your Power Challenge, um, and you can sign up for that. Um, I do that like every six to eight weeks. And that is, um, you can sign up for that on my website, TeresaNoy.com. And um, you can get the book, Hello Autism, on my website as well, TeresaNoy.com. Or you can get it on all, you know, major platforms, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, Amazon, all those places. Yeah. Well, um, as someone who's known you since before you were a mom, Mm -hmm. uh, kudos to you. For this Thank journey you. Uh, Thank and, you. and where you are now and still being on the journey and being at a place of authenticity where you can acknowledge your own humanity and that you are still growing and evolving. Um, and I'm excited to see where the journey takes the kids as well, both of them and, and how they impact the world also. So I'm so happy we had this conversation. And listen, I'm going to say this, right? Because the book is how to love, like, and learn from your special needs child. But if you are anybody who has had a vision for your life and a, a carefully curated vision and expectation about what it was going to be, and you are now mourning uh, the fact that it did not come to fruition in that way, and you're trying to navigate what your life looks like now and having to dream a new dream for yourself, there are lessons in this book for you. So while it is targeting uh, parents of special needs children, there are nuggets in here that anybody can apply to their their lives who are moving through difficulty and trying to adjust to a new normal. So I would encourage anyone to get it, even if you're not a parent. And and you've mentioned several times, Teresa, about the importance of a coach. If you're looking for a coach or just looking for a community of women who are like-minded and on a similar path of trying to maximize potential, which we talk about on the show all the time, 
go to TeresaNoy.com, check her out on social media, get into what she's offering. Uh, we are all about having a village here and having support. And if you don't have the answers, going to find them. So make sure you support her. If you are into this podcast, if you enjoyed the episode, tell somebody about it. We are nothing without our listeners. So like, share, subscribe, all that great stuff. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.